with our wonderful string band here. We invite you to join in on the chorus. I think you'll recognize it. This music was originally chosen to go with a sermon by Bob, who is out sick today on wandering and the joy of getting lost. And today we're focusing more on what it's like to be in a place. And I remember a time when I was moving a lot. And the only way I could get through it was to remind myself that wherever I was, I was at home in my own body. So as we go all wandering here and you sing along, think of how joyful it is to be at home wherever you are.
What if pushing is only half of it? What if there is time to waste? What if rushing is what got us into this mess? What if catching our breath shrinks the clouds and expands our view? And what if space for breathing is what enables seeds of change to take root? What if pausing allows the longing to grow? What if it's not about taking control of life, but being quiet enough to hear life speak? What if slowing down is what allows us to notice we are not the only ones who long for change? Catching our breath isn't about resting up, but the way we finally and fully feel. And what if comfort has been withheld from us? Wouldn't that mean that rest is a revolutionary act? Come, let us worship together. Good morning. I'm Judy Goring. Whether you are in the physical or virtual sanctuary, in the social hall or family room, welcome. Oh. I invite you to take a look around for a moment. Notice who is sitting next to you or who else is on Zoom with you. Take a look around. 
It's good to be together. Whether it's your first time or whether you're already familiar with this place, you are all essential part of our celebration today. Welcome. Our services are multi-generational. They are lively. A multi-generational church is a cooing, coughing, wiggling, fussing, laughing, clapping, oxygen whooshing, hearing aid whistling, whispering, occasional cell phone ringing thing, and we love the beautiful boisterousness of it all. We are people of many beliefs, many origins, sexualities, and genders. We are all growing, all learning, all loved. Kids are welcome to sit right up front or anywhere in the sanctuary. There's a children's table in the back for some quiet activities and for some youngsters who could use you know, a little more room to move around. The family room across the hall is now open and the service is streamed onto the screen in there. So welcome everyone. <laughs> Hi, everyone. You might have noticed if you are looking at your order of service and you've been around for a little while that I am not Angela. <laughs> I am your intern minister, Kristen Famula. You might have also noticed that Angela is not Bob. As you might have heard, we are letting Bob stay at home today and fight the crud that's been going around all week. We hope that he gets better and comes back to us soon. And as you've also heard, things are a little bit different today. We've got laptops up here on the platform with us. That's because we are streaming onto Zoom from the sanctuary for the very first time. And we really just want to keep an eye on how it's going for the folks here and for the folks on Zoom as we lean into this new way of doing our services. And speaking of that, Justin, which camera is on our service right now? All right, if you all will turn around and wave at that camera up on the platform right there. Hello to everyone on Zoom. We are so excited about this new way of doing things. In a moment, we are going to light some candles. And folks on Zoom, I invite you to have one ready there at home. While people are coming forward here in the physical sanctuary, all of you online are going to be invited to light your own candle and share who it's for and any other prayers that you have in the chat box. This has been the week of Halloween and Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, a time when fall tips towards winter, a time for celebration and costumes, and a time when the veil between the living and the dead thins 
and their ongoing presence in our lives is acknowledged. Each of our lives has been shaped by people who are now gone. All of us, if we live long enough, will lose someone we love, and we will carry their memory in our hearts. In this way, those who have died are still with us. They form a great invisible crowd of witnesses, a spirit congregation around us. When the music begins, you're invited to come forward through the center aisles and light a candle for those who have died. If coming forward is not possible for you, there are two ways you can still participate, by thinking of them when the first candle is lit or by raising your hand when you see one of us looking around the room. And we will make eye contact with you and then light a candle on your behalf. We begin.
Today we remember and honor the lives of those we loved. We pray that we might learn from their wisdom, that our empathy might grow from their learnings and from their courage 
that we might be humbled by their mistakes and recommitted to living lives of truth and love in their honor. We know there is likely more on your hearts this morning, people and places you are holding with care. As the chime rings, you are invited to share those names aloud or into the chat bar if you are with us online. All these, named aloud and held on our hearts, we lift up to the great powers of healing and renewal known by many names. We send prayers to those who will be working at the polls on Tuesday and who are already caring for our votes with integrity. May their commitment be met with ease and peace. This morning, we hold each other in the vulnerability of our wide open hearts. May they remain open, even in pain and sadness. May we love fully through it all. In these coming weeks, may we all remain healthy and loving and kind. Amen, and peace be with you. Feel free to join us in singing Woyaya, it's number 1020 in the turquoise hymnal.
Map of the Journey in Progress by Reverend Victoria Safford. Here is where I found my voice and chose to be brave. Here's a place where I forgave someone against my better judgment, and I survived that. And unexpectedly, amazingly, I became wiser. Here's where I was once forgiven, was ready for once in my life to receive forgiveness and to be transformed. And I survived that also. I lived to tell the tale. This is the place where I said no more loudly than I thought I ever could. And everybody stared, but I said no loudly anyway, because I knew it must be said. And those staring settled down into harmless, ineffective grumbling. And over me, they had no power anymore. Here's a time, and here's another, when I laid down my fear and walked right on into it, right up to my neck, into that roiling water. Here's where cruelty taught me something. And here's where I was first astonished by gratuitous compassion and knew it for the miracle it was, the requirement it is. It was a trembling time. And here, much later, is where I returned to the blessing. Clumsily. It wasn't hard, but I was unaccustomed. It cycled round, and as best I could, I sent it back on out, passed the gift along. This circular motion, around, around and around, around, has no apparent end. Here's a place, a murky puddle, where I have stumbled more than once and fallen. I don't know yet what to learn there. On this site, I was outraged, and the rage sustains me still. It clarifies my seeing. And here's where something caught me. A warm breeze in late winter, birdsong in late summer. Here's where I was told that something was wrong with my eyes, that I see the world strangely. And here's where I said, yes, I know. I walk in beauty. Here is where I began to look with my own eyes and listen with my ears and sing my own song, shaky as it is. Here is where, as if by surgeon's knife, my heart was opened up. And here, and here, and here, and here, these are the landmarks of conversion. So I'm covering for Bob today with a sermon that I preached back in 2014, originally called Where Are We? So I've updated it for today and I'm calling it Where Are We Again? <laughs> I'm going to start by letting you in on something that I hid from my family once. In 2010, as we were finishing up our 2,200-mile road trip to relocate from Cambridge, Massachusetts to here in Albuquerque, 
when we were about 45 minutes away from the driveway of the rental house, and my kids, ages 11 and 14 at the time, were in the back seat of the car, along with enough camping gear to get us through a week until the moving trucks arrived. As we passed through Moriarty and then Edgewood and the East Mountains, and Albuquerque came into view for the very first time, a terrible wave of panic washed over me. If you've ever relocated between starkly different places in the country or the world, you might be able to relate to this shock that I was experiencing. Everything looked so dry and so brown as far as my eyes could see. I knew that Albuquerque was a high-altitude city, but we had not driven up into the kind of mountains I had imagined, and instead we had been rising almost imperceptibly since Texas. When the city finally spread out below us as we barreled toward it on I-40, I looked at the slopes on either side of us and I saw nothing but piles of boulders and scrubby plants. Since Amarillo, Amarillo, I had been shushing a worry that was trying to take hold of my mind and it finally prevailed. Oh my God. What have I done? <laughs> I thought to myself, I have led my family into the desert. <laughs> we originally came from Oregon, where my family has been there for generations. It was damp, sopping, and green all the time. And you, honestly, you could hardly see the land because of all the trees. And here, in contrast, land was all my eyes could discern, lots of it in every direction, dry land stretching on and on and on, meeting the horizon on every side. I had led my family into the desert and they were very nervous. They were trusting me that this is what we should do. Panic washed over me and I made myself breathe. I pretended to be calm. I pretended to be confident and out loud I said, wow, this is really different. What an adventure we're on. <laughs> I put all my trust in those words, you know. I put my trust in you, this congregation, because although we didn't know each other very well yet, I knew there could not be such a wonderful congregation in the desert unless the desert was a good place to be. With that in mind, I just kept breathing away the panic, and I did this for the first couple of weeks that we were here. And then something happened that took all of my worry away. You want to know what it was? I went up to the top of the mountain and looked down. From the crest, I saw not land, but landscape. Right? Not boulders, but contours. City, bosque, river, mesa that stretches on like an ocean and sometimes turns blue at dusk, volcanoes, Mount Taylor, sky, and my heart just expanded. You know that feeling of your heart growing when it's moved by something beautiful? I finally saw where I really was.
We are surrounded in beauty. We're also surrounded by stories. We see signs of them all around us in the geography that reminds us that a long, long time ago, this place was under the ocean. Stories are in the architecture, technology, art, and artifacts, and in the great diversity of people who live here. It's in the many languages spoken here where we can also perceive the stories of this place, this place that is currently called New Mexico, but was formerly known as Mexico, New Spain, and many other names in languages that have been here much longer than Spanish and English. Languages like Tanoan, Karasin, Zuni, and Navajo. I wonder what names this place will be given in the future. I don't think it's an unpatriotic kind of question. It's a humble kind of question. We are temporary. The earth, less so. The land will live on. And in this way, it's a spiritual question too. Where are we? The season of Thanksgiving is a great time to ask this question because for many people, Thanksgiving has become a spiritual holiday, a time to practice gratitude, and gratitude is good. But of course, the holiday is also tied to a national myth that shapes our sense of where we are. It's a myth that caught on during the Civil War when Abraham Lincoln told a story of pilgrims and Indians eating together. He told the story as a way to encourage unity in a divided country. In reality, what had happened was that the Wampanoag people had heard gunfire coming from the Plymouth colony. And since a treaty of mutual protection had forged a tense alliance between the two groups, they went to help defend the colony from what sounded like a possible attack. When they arrived, though, they found that the colonists were firing guns into the air to celebrate the harvest. And the colonists invited the Wampanoag people to eat with them over the next few days. Of course, this first Thanksgiving was anything but emblematic of the predominant relationship between the colonists, colonizers, and Native Americans. What happened in the years after that is really horrifying. And if there's one fact that sums up the level of brutality upon which our country was founded, it is this. The colonial government eventually stopped offering bounties for very small scalps. You get what I'm saying? I don't want to spell it out any more than that in what is, in fact, a multi-generational space. It is awful. But as Alice Walker says, the problem with this country is amnesia. So we have to try not to have amnesia. In an indigenous people's history of the United States, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz writes about the national myth that America's founders started this country so that their descendants could have a better life, freedom, and democracy, and so that there could be a free country. The concept of descendants has expanded since then to include women and people of color, but it still denies that the free country was founded through genocide, and it suffers from greed the privatization of property, debt, the accumulation of wealth by a few, and the remnants of slavery. So when we 
give thanks. We have to be mindful as Americans that we are not yelling thank you to drown out the nagging of our national conscience or to shore up a myth that actually perpetuates oppression. And instead, let's give thanks for the ability to speak freely, to tell a different story. There's a book about the Tierra Amarilla land grant in northern New Mexico that tells an interesting piece of the story. Uh, the book is Properties of Violence by David Correa. The land that is now called Tierra Amarilla is among the most beautiful places in our state. It's rugged, it's flanked by mountains and wild areas with long stretches of land that are perfect for grazing animals. Originally, the Ute and Apache people lived there. In the 17th century, Spain and then Mexico pushed into the area, colonizing. The Ute and Apache people fought to defend the land where they lived. They drove the invaders out multiple times, in fact, including during the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, when Pueblos across New Mexico united and they pushed the Spanish out completely. They purged them for 12 years. Even after Spain returned, the Native people maintained their claims to the land. And in fact, across the U.S., Native communities will point out to this day many have never signed anything giving up the claim to their land, to any land. In the 17 and 1800s, even after the land at Tierra Amarilla had been given to groups of farmers and ranchers who were themselves subjects of colonial rule, the Native people continued to fight for it, sometimes driving settlers away again. But eventually, the settlers won out in the area. The land grant was settled. Each family would have a plot to work with a communal area for a water access and grazing. So in this sense, with that communal area, the land grants were actually communal. Nobody owned the entire thing, but those who lived on it had a share in it. Time passed. And the grandchildren of the people who moved into Tierra Amarilla thought of the land as theirs. They had been born there. They depended on it. Then the U.S.-Mexican War happened. When the Mexican-American Treaty was signed, turning northern Mexico over to the American government, turning it into the southwestern U.S., the treaty promised to protect the settler family's claims to their land. The idea was that the people living on the grants at that time could stay in place, and their heirs could inherit it. But once the transfer had been made to the American government, things changed again. Corrupt government officials seeking to make money partnered with investors who interpreted the treaty and the law according to their own aims. When they were recording who owned the land grant, they listed one person as the owner, ignoring the complexities of common property that should have come along with it. Later, that owner sold the property, not realizing that they were selling it out from under their neighbors as well. And soon, all of the land had been taken out from under its inhabitants. Like the native people before them, the land grant people did not go passively. They resisted by squatting on the land, cutting fences, threatening the newcomers who claimed to own it because they'd had it in their families for generations, but the law was being used against them. And meanwhile, the land changed hands again and again on paper, belonging to investors in New York, Boston, and even England. Many investors had no idea they were purchasing disputed land. And this played out for generations, with occasional flare-ups 
and with many heirs simply moving eventually into other little villages around northern New Mexico and just trying to make the best of it. This story was mostly unknown outside of the area until the 1960s, when Chicano activists partnered with the heirs of the Tierra Maria land grant and they accused the U.S. government of land theft. As Correa describes in the book, their leader, a charismatic man named Reyes Lopez Tijerina, reignited the fight. He threatened to seize private lands from ranchers. He organized sit-ins on former land grants controlled by the U.S. Forest Service, an agency that he described as an occupying force in New Mexico. And he attempted to make citizens arrests of prominent political figures, including Warren Burger, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court and thousands of land-grant heirs rallied around him. On June 5, 1967, the battle culminated in a gunfight at the Rio Arriba County Courthouse. At the end of the raid, two officials had been shot and two people had been kidnapped. The raiders fled into the mountains where police helicopters buzzed overhead and National Guard tanks crashed through those rural dirt roads in search of the rebels and suddenly, Tijerina was famous. The FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, had him tailed everywhere he went. And the Poor People's Campaign asked him to stand in, along with Ralph Abernathy and Jesse Jackson, for Martin Luther King Jr. after King was assassinated. All of this from Little New Mexico. How many of you already knew this story? A few. Maybe about a fourth of the hands went up here in the room. It's a story that we are still living in, a story of taking and forgetting, of violence and amnesia. But we can choose to be a place, a people that does not have amnesia. We can only have hope for the future when we are honest about the present and the past. Otherwise, our dreams are grounded in falsehoods and incomplete stories that makes them fragile and impossible to attain. Remembering is sacred work that we do together at First Unitarian. As I wrote this, I was also thinking of how our lives are like landscapes. They've got a context, too. They may include some trauma, and some conflict. They are stories of being and becoming. They might not have easy answers. For some of us, as you pass through the terrain that is your life right now, maybe it's a little bit dry, a little passionless or a little lonely. Maybe depression or grief have robbed it of some of its color. That comes up a lot for folks, especially around the holidays. Maybe you're even experiencing some panic. Is it rocky, thorny, unpredictable? Maybe it's not what you were expecting or what you've been accustomed to. And maybe once in a while you muster up your courage to go, wow, this is so different. <laughs> what an adventure I'm on <laughs> through gritted teeth, <laughs> right? <laughs> but put your trust in those words. Put your trust in those words. Because whatever you're going through right now, I'll bet it means something. There's probably something in it for you. I don't mean that it was meant to be. I can't know that. I just know 
that the painful things, the difficulty, desolation, despair, depression, those have their power at the lower altitudes, you know, down on the ground. And when we take in not just the immediate terrain, but the whole landscape of our lives, then we also see not just crises, but contours. So how will you look back at this time? How does it figure in your larger story? In closing, I want to share with you the Benedictine writer and theologian, Sister Maria Bolding's words. She understood what a spiritual place the desert can be. She writes, our desert is any place where we confront God. It's not a change of scene, nor a place to run from our failures, nor a heroic adventure that does something for our ego. Our desert experience might be tedium, weariness, disappointment, loneliness, emptiness, confusion, the feeling that we have nothing to give, the conviction that we constantly fail and fail God. You just have to keep on keeping on in prayer, she says. You're not aware of progress because there seems to be nothing by which it could be measured. There are no paths in the desert except the ones that you make by walking them. Those words remind me of Antonio Machado who writes, Caminante no hay camino, se hace el camino al andar. Traveler, there's no path. You make the path by walking. Sister Bolding continues, it's the place of truth, but also of tenderness. A place of loneliness, but also of God's closeness and care. In the place of hunger and the poverty of spirit, she writes, we are fed and you come to see it as the place where there can be springing water. Mana, unexpected nourishment, to keep you going and strength you never knew you had. So wherever you are in life's journey this morning, may you find that tenderness and care also. Knowing that that knowing of higher things, whatever your name for the divine, the truth, the larger love is with you. And may this congregation, through its ministry in this, one of the most beautiful places in the country, truly, may it help extend these blessings to others. morning. A few days ago, I was driving my daughter someplace. We were talking. I took a turn and she said, Dad, you're going the wrong way. Then she said, I know what you're doing. You think you're headed to church. She was right. I've traveled the route to this campus for almost 20 years now, so much that it's almost like a road home. When I've needed solace, I've come here. When I've needed challenge or inspiration, I've come here. My children have grown up here, in RE, in OWL, at kids camp. Sometimes I don't even know what I need, and then I find it here. I'm Bill Slakey. I'm speaking today for the Radical Generosity team. In all this time, I've seen a few fundraising campaigns, and I want us to remind ourselves that Radical Generosity isn't just a name. Look around. Together, we've built this beautiful sanctuary. And we've renovated our social hall. And we've bought the art building. 
We've dreamed big, and we've been generous, radically. But what were we really dreaming about? Not buildings, I know, but the possibilities that buildings create. The things we give our time and our love to together. Things like these two services today, or the social justice auction, or after-school tutoring, or the string band playing. Think about the new covenant that welcomes three distinct congregations under this roof. I hadn't even thought of that possibility, and now it's a reality. And in these times especially, it's radical. I can also see this congregation's generosity in the line of fantastic interns like Kristen and Jane that we've worked with over the years. And that's another investment in possibilities. We've welcomed them, and they've gone on to serve this community and many others across the country. Radical. Now, I'll be honest. This year's fundraising target might not seem particularly radical. Coming out of COVID, it seemed best to lay out foundations to return and renew and gather ourselves. Well, everybody says it's hard to raise money for an operating budget with no flashy initiatives. But we can prove that wrong. We are radical. The bulk of our budget pays for our wonderful ministers and staff. And that's our biggest investment and possibility of all. In these challenging years, they've figured out ways to make the impossible possible. A church that stretches beyond its buildings. A community of virtual hugs and without coffee. Now, as we're coming back together in new ways, what can't we do? As of this week, we're about 60% of the way to our campaign goal, and that's great. But wouldn't it be really radical to meet the goal early or even exceed it? I thank those of you who've made your pledge, and I challenge those of you who have not yet pledged to do so. You are important. Your pledge and your energy and your presence and your voice they all matter here. Please pledge as you are able and help strengthen the programs that make our big dreams possible. When we give ourselves to possibility, we might not know exactly where we're going, but we'll get there. We know we will. Our change for the future partner for September, October, and November is Art Street a community art studio used primarily by people who are unhoused. All loose change in any checks or envelopes marked change for the future will go to Art Street. You can also give online or mail a check to the church. The ushers will now take up the offering.
How great is the music in this congregation? (laughs) Will you all join me in blessing our offerings today? We are so grateful to be able to partner in this way to live out our mission in this world. Thank you for your generosity. We are so grateful. And we love our newcomers here. If you are online today, will you please introduce yourself in the chat so that everyone can get to know you? And if you are here in this room with us today and you feel comfortable raising your hand, we would love to welcome you with applause. And we would have loved to applause anyway for all those folks online. (laughs) Welcome to everyone. During the coffee hour, either after the service in the social hall or in the chat rooms online, we hope you will all greet each other, warmly welcome each other, and get to know one another. And I have a couple invitations for you all. These are all listed in your order of service. There are three really important ones, and they're also, all the details are available in the online electronic communications that we send out each week. The first is for today, after the 11 o'clock service, here on campus, we have another opportunity to remember our loved ones, um, specifically at the Memorial Garden at 1215. So if you are either interested in coming back to the service or uh, are hanging out on campus this entire time, then come join us at 12.15. The second invitation that we have for you is at 7 p.m. this coming Tuesday, Reverend Bob LaValle, who is a veteran and a former chaplain at the VA, will be holding a space over Zoom for people who haven't been impacted by war. That'll be at 7 p.m. and you can find the details in the order of service. And then um, my last invitation for you today is for a, a, a bunch of things happening next weekend, a concert, workshops, and a worship with our artist in residence, Francisco Ruiz. Um, check out your order of service for all the details of that upcoming event. And also, no matter where you are, online, in person, we hope that you'll join us in having conversations and continuing to engage around the topic of today's service with a question, when have you gotten lost, literally or metaphorically, and ended up finding something good because of it? And lastly, will you all rise in body or spirit? If you are at home, will you change your screen to gallery view? As we do our peace greeting, before we do this, I just want to let you know, last time I looked on the screen, there were over 85 screens online with us for the Zoom portion of this service today, which means, of course, many more than those 85 screens. So as you place one hand over your heart and extend the other one outward towards your community, make sure you are turning back towards that that computer screen back there, camera back there, so that we can greet one another. And one of these days, we'll have them all up on a screen as well. Will you join each other in the peace greeting? What is
thankful for you and for you, Zoomers. I'll go in peace and may love bless you and keep you until we gather again. Blessed be. Thank you.